You know, I have been in church since before I could remember being in church. I didn't go to church. They carried me in for a few years. And I'll never forget this Sunday. Uh, to see so many people singing with all the, with all the enthusiasm that you just did uh, in these conditions to baptize four people, including one who just trusted Christ this week. See the joy on his face. To realize that this is just a little tiny snapshot of the church of Jesus down through the ages. The church persists. The church keeps going. The church adapts. The church serves for the sake of Christ. The church is ruled by Christ. The church obeys Christ. And it will all be worth it. And it might be one of the most memorable Sundays uh, we've ever had. It will be for me. So thank you so much for being here. Whether you're watching online. We're hoping that the audio will be, uh, will be just fine for you. In the future, uh, if it ever gets this windy again, we'll probably move indoors. We're learning. We're changing. We're getting better, we hope. Uh, if you don't subscribe to the church email, please do so today. I send two a week, one on Thursday afternoon to preview the weekend and one on Sunday afternoon just to give you a recap of what we did here in church together. Uh, we're scattered, as I've been telling you, but we're not divided. We're together. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. I'm so blessed, Lord, to be able to just to know you. That's what matters most. It matters so much more. Being a Christian matters so much more than being a pastor. Thank you for calling me your, your child. I'm your son first and most. But I'm also privileged to be able to open the Bible. And it's distracting up here, Lord. You know that. It's distracting me perhaps even more in the pew. But give us grace to listen for a little while, to take to heart your words because they couldn't be any more timely and more needed, and help us march through this week transformed by what you tell us here. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 21 is the spot where we will quickly move through a large and important section of Scripture. In ancient Israel, there were three roles that really governed the life and mediated the life of the whole nation. Israel was a people set aside for God from whom Jesus would come. That was the beginning. That was the promise from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 12. Jesus, uh, God promised Abraham, rather, that from his family, the entire world would be blessed. We came to understand as God's story unfolded that the blessing from Abraham to the whole world would be Jesus Christ, who would save any and all from every nation and gather for God a people that was greater than Israel itself nationally, that he would have the true Israel, people from all over the world, all ethnic groups, all languages, all belief systems, all kinds of brokenness and sinfulness in their past, all redeemed by Jesus. That first word was spoken to God by Abraham when Israel was formed. Three offices became very important within the life of Israel. The first was the prophet. The prophet was a man sent by God to speak to God his word to his people. If you look at your Bible, you'll find that the greatest part of it is prophetic in nature. The second office was that of the priest. When Israel was constituted, God set aside a whole tribe, the Levites, 
and from them was chosen a high priest who would go in once a year, as you know if you've read the Bible, would go in to offer a sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the sins of all the nation. And the role of the priest was to represent God to people, to stand between sinful people and a holy God and bring them into God's presence. The third office was one that Israel chose for itself after they rejected, rejected the kingship of God, Israel chose for themselves kings. So prophet, priest, and king. Three offices and no one in Israel was qualified to do all three. Occasionally someone would try to usurp two roles at once and God always dealt harshly with that sin. Only some could be prophets, a very few could be priests, and even smaller number could be kings. But in Christ, in Jesus, you see the perfect representation of all three. If you've never heard this, here's a little devotional uh, lens you can take into your Bible reading from now on. Jesus is God's final and best prophet. Jesus is the great high priest who brings us into the presence of God, and Jesus himself is the king who will judge and rule the nations. And as you read across the Gospels, anytime Jesus is speaking, it's interesting devotionally to ask yourself in that moment, though Jesus is all three, he is prophet, priest, and king, is he acting and speaking more in the role as a prophet Or is he telling you, as the book of Hebrews does, that he is the great high priest? Or is he, even in his earthly, humble condition, he will occasionally, as you'll see at the end of this passage, assert himself as God himself and as the king of all the nations. In Luke 21, Jesus functions as prophet. All three offices are here, but primarily Jesus is prophesying. And people in the pandemic are reading Luke 21 and passages like it in Matthew 24, for instance, probably with more interest than they ever have in their lives because we're under pressure. In many nations, persecution has always been a feature of the Christian experience. Some American Christians are saying that in the conditions that we're living in now, they are beginning to feel persecuted. In some isolated individual instances, some actually undeniably have been. And Jesus is going to speak prophetically about judgment. And I'm going to read a long passage, and let me just prepare you for it to better enhance your reading. As I'm going to read, you're going to see that Jesus is going to speak not of two, not of one judgment, but of two. He's going to speak at length about a judgment that will occur in the lifetime of the people who are listening to him. And then he is going to telescope much farther ahead to a day that has not yet occurred where he is going to speak of his own return where not Jerusalem, not the temple, not Israel alone will be judged, but the whole world will. Look with me in Luke chapter 21, verse 5. It says, while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. This is Herod's temple. It is an absolutely spectacular place. It took decades and decades to build. And people in Jesus' presence are admiring the temple that they're enjoying. As they were doing that, Jesus said, verse 6, as for these things that you see, 
The days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus said, admire the temple all you want. There is a day coming where one stone will not be left built on another. Some of you have gone to Israel with us. Some of you have visited Israel. You can see the prophecy that Jesus spoke here in modern day fulfillment because there are still stones in the ancient street embedded in the street below that have been there since Rome, Titus of Rome sacked the temple and destroyed the walls. They are left there as an archaeological and historical remembrance of what occurred nearly 2,000 years ago, and they are a visible fulfillment of what Jesus is speaking of here. And it must have shocked the crowd because they were living in days of peace and relative prosperity. So, verse 7, they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will the sign when these things what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? He said, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. Even within the lifetime of the disciples who knew Jesus himself, imposters would come in the name of Jesus. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Look at the mindset. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will be put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who were in Judea, that's the province around Jerusalem, flee to the mountains and let those who were inside the city depart and let not those who were out in the country, country enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who were nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people, against the Jewish people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Don't miss this, a very important phrase in Luke's gospel. Jesus said, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. What's happening here? If you're keeping notes in this long passage, it'd be helpful to do so. Jesus here is telling us of two judgments. The first 
is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by Rome in 70 AD. There were riots against Rome earlier, but in 66 AD, a genuine war took place. And finally, in AD 70, Titus breached the city walls after barbaric suffering inside the city. He destroyed Jerusalem. He desecrated the temple. And everything that Jesus is speaking of here in this passage I just read to you came to be. Jesus is now going to move forward and Please make the distinction. He's going to take, he's going to look ahead to the last judgment at his own return. The feature of Bible prophecy is often what I could compare to a telescope that looks close, very intently at the foreground and observes things that are nearby, but then has the capacity to telescope and to expand its vision to look much farther ahead. If you've read the prophet Isaiah, for instance, you will see sometimes just a few inches apart references to the birth of Jesus, which was 700 years in the future, and the second return and the reign of Christ, which is still in the future some 2,700 years later. One of the challenges in reading the in prophecy in the Bible is this poetic movement between things that are nearby and things that are still far away. In Luke's gospel, we have a very clear marker of the difference in these two places. The marker in this passage separating the two judgments, the one in AD 70 and the one that is, we're still awaiting at the Lord's return is in verse 24 when Jesus said, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. This is the season we live in right now. From the scattering of Israel seven, several hundred years before Jesus was born and the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, we have lived in a season of history that, biblically speaking, could be called the time of the Gentiles. The gospel is going all around the world, but primarily those believing, not exclusively, but primarily where Jesus is being loved and praised and preached is among the Gentiles. The sins of the Gentile nations are increasing, and so is disciple-making in all the nations of the world. These are the times of the Gentiles. This is when we're living in now. It's very important to understand that Jesus did not tell the disciples that they were wrong to expect the restoration of Israel. He just told them that the time belonged to God alone. Look with me over in Acts chapter 1. You'll see what I mean. While you're looking there, let me remind you that Luke wrote two books. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote the, he re, he wrote the book you're looking at now, the book of Acts. In Luke's mind, they were really two volumes. He always intended to tell the whole story. Luke tells the story of the life of Christ. The book of Acts tells about Jesus' return to the Father. And as you're going to see, the commission of the first disciples to make disciples in all nations. And I want you to see something very interesting, but I think vitally important to understand Bible, Bible prophecy in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Jesus is back from the dead. That is the setting. The disciples are seeing him in person. 
They can see the wounds in his body, but they can see that he is glorified and healthy. He is still in charge. He is commanding them. In fact, he has them gather. And we read in verse 6, Acts 1 verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That's a very understandable question. All the Jews of Jesus' day that put their hope in Jesus sincerely believed that he was the one that is going to set them free from Rome. You may remember at the triumphal entry, there seems to be kind of this political energy, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and then Jesus dies. His disciples did not expect it. In fact, you may remember Peter specifically told him that he should never die, that he should never be crucified. But now, now that he is absolutely the Lord in charge, not only of life, but the Lord in charge of death, now they say, we were right all along. We were just a little premature. Now that he's conquered death, now he's going to take us into the city. Now he's going to get rid of the Romans. So they ask, verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus doesn't correct them. He doesn't tell them they were wrong. He just tells them the timing is none of their business. Look at verse 7. It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And He already told them back in Luke that being His witnesses was going to come at a price, that they were going to be betrayed, that they were going to be judged, that they were going to be hauled in front of the authorities, but all of this would be an opportunity to witness. Now, that's the marker, verse 24, the time of the Gentiles when the gospel is going from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Now Jesus is going to telescope forward to look at something that has not yet occurred. We're in 2021. These days have not yet come upon us, or we would have known it, according to Jesus. Luke 21, verse 25. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Don't miss this. Here's the second return of Christ. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Son of Man, if you want to make a note of it, is a messianic title that Jesus is taking for himself from the book of Daniel, chapter 7. It's a lot to take in for us because we don't have the Jewish background that his disciples did, but Jesus is claiming to be the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies, and he said his second coming will be unmistakable. Just as they were seeing him at that moment, someday they would see him as the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. That's when you will be totally free. That's when you will be actually redeemed. And he's, here's a little interlude. He tells them a little parable 
of how, basically, you can look at a plant and know what time of year it is. You need to be attentive to the signs that are occurring in your lifetime. Verse 29, he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. In other words, you can look at a tree and know whether it's fall or winter, whether spring or summer has come, depending on the foliage. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all this has taken place. This verse has confused a lot of people because it would seem to say that the men who were listening to him would still be alive at the time of his second coming. I believe what Jesus meant instead is when his return came, it would come very quickly. That's an idea you'll see all through the Bible. I'll refer to it a little bit later in Luke chapter 18. When the Lord's return comes, it will be decisive. It will be unmistakable. It will be overwhelming. And he says in verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Please, Christian, hear this. When the end begins, it will happen quickly. And the Lord's return is often doubted, but bear in mind, according to verse 33, it's Jesus who's promising it. If I can step into our own time a little bit and give you some reflection of how I see particularly American Christians reacting in these difficult days. We seem to fall in one of two ditches. One ditch is to become so insistent on knowing what Jesus told the disciples in Acts chapter 1, they could not know, that we are so focused on setting a time and understanding the day and to the point of setting a date for his return. You may remember a few years ago, a teacher, Harold Camping, convinced a large number of people across the United States that the Lord's return was so imminent, many of them sold their homes. Uh, They completely changed their lifestyles. He had billboards across the country announcing the specific time. Of course, he was mistaken. He was wrong. He apologized before his death. But there is always something in some Christians that is so insistent on knowing the exact time that they don't pay attention to what Jesus actually told us to do, which is really the bulk of his teaching, which I'm going to show you now. That's one ditch being so consumed and interested in speculation and deduction regarding the Lord's return that you barely have time to do what He told you to do while you waited, and the other probably more prevalent and in reaction to all this date setting, some Christians have practically given up on the idea of His return. Some are beginning to doubt whether He will actually return or whether that is some kind of Christian mythology. Please hear Jesus promising his return and saying in verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. He said that immediately after promising his bodily and personal return. But, dear Christian, and this is the heart of the sermon, and believe it or not, I'm almost done. I want you to thank you for your attention in this blustery day, and I want you to see at the end that the real heart of Jesus' teaching was not date setting, 
the teaching he did regarding the signs of the times was all intended to tune Christians up so that they would act the way they should while they waited. Look in verse 34. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. How did Jesus tell us to behave while we await his return? The first thing he said to do was to watch for it. To not grow so numb and so interested in the pleasures of this life and so weighed down by the difficulties of this life that you were surprised by his coming. And listen, this pandemic has been brutal. It's affected all of us, some in very painful and irreplaceable ways. Some people have lost people they dearly loved. That is, that is terribly, terribly hard. But looking, stepping back and looking at the entire picture of what the church is being tempted to do and tempted to be after being locked in for so long, my longer concern for the greatest number of us is that we will become so accustomed to screens, so accustomed to comforting ourselves with permanent entertainment, so engaged in social media that the warning that Jesus gave us here will go unheeded. Look, look again at verse 34. Watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. In other words, be careful that you're not so worried about this life or so numb by the pleasures you seek and the substances you use to forget your difficulty that you are surprised by my return. Watchfulness for Christ includes always giving a witness to Christ. You'll notice both for the disciples who would endure the destruction of Jerusalem and the disciples that are being instructed now, for those of us who were alive well past that time, the concern for Jesus and the way he's resetting their mindset is your persecution, your suffering will give you an opportunity to give witness. That's the mindset that we need to cultivate. Listen to Peter talk to Jewish Christians in 1 Peter chapter 3, Christians who were actually enduring persecution. Let the words of Peter to them instruct us. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. You believe that? See, so the way some Christians are acting, we act as if the worst thing that could happen to us is to suffer on behalf of righteousness, to suffer for the name of Christ. Peter says, that will be a blessing for you. Look, if you're very concerned and you think the best days of the church are behind it, I don't. I disagree. I think harder days are ahead, but I think the best days are ahead as well. I think the harder days are going to be better days. Listen to Peter. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Times of persecution, times of division, times of strife, times of suffering, Peter says, offer a platform for witness so that you can tell people about the hope that you enjoy that contrasts so starkly with their despair. Listen, Christian, 
If you're angry, and if you're angry online, if you spend your day monitoring comments and news, sec- and news sections and arguing with people, including people in your family or even perfect strangers, as a friend of mine recently admitted to doing, he's going online to argue with people he'll never meet. Listen to this. Do it with gentleness and respect. The way Christians respond to suffering in the name of Christ, to suffering for the sake of righteousness is we explain the hope that we have and we do it with gentleness and respect. Verse 16, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. This is the way Christians act. Some Christians are behaving as if Christ himself were not gentle. Some Christians are behaving as if Christ himself were not patient. Remember the trial of our Lord. He was put on trial and did not speak in his defense. He warned his disciples he could have thousands of angels to defend him, but he refused rescue. It says in Isaiah, and the Gospel of Matthew repeats it as Jesus' fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah that the Lord did not quarrel and raise his voice. He was gentle, sweet, loving, respectful, strong, calm, peaceful, and determined all the way to the end. We, his disciples, have no sanction to behave any differently because watchfulness includes not only witness but also being ready to suffer for Christ. Look at the very next verse, verse 36. Jesus said, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. First word from Jesus, Christian, watch. Cultivate a mindset that persecution may come, but that will be your opportunity to give witness. Since I came here 16 years ago, I've quietly been trying to prepare you through preaching, through teaching, through our discipleship efforts to be a more resilient Christian. So that if life, as I expect, does become harder for Christians in the United States, you are not shaken, but rather you are prepared to stand with quiet strength, with gentle respect in the face of people who make it uncomfortable for you to be a Christian. Jesus says, watch for my coming, be ready for my coming, and as you watch, verse 36, what did he tell us to do? Pray. Pray that you may have the strength to escape all these things. What things? Not the persecution. He already promised that's going to come. What we need to escape is the dissipation, the lack of focus. We need, number two, to pray for the strength to focus and to endure. He told the disciples, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. And they did. They kept their life in Christ, and they showed the life of Christ by holding on to Christ in the midst of persecution. And Jesus' real concern, I can see through the Gospel of Luke, is not whether he will keep his promises, but whether he will find many people faithfully waiting. In Luke 18, he told a very famous parable about a widow who goes to an unjust judge, begging him for justice insistently. And Jesus says, the judge was worn out by the insistence of this widow. Your heavenly Father is nothing like that. 
He doesn't have to be worn down. He will listen to you, Luke 18, verse 8. I tell you, he will give them justice. He will give justice to them speedily. In other words, when the end comes, it will come quickly, just as we saw in this chapter. But look at the question of Jesus. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Jesus has no concern about his coming. He knows his return is certain. God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit know what God will do when the Son will return. The question is, who will be waiting faithfully when he does? And in verse 36, I just want to show you in closing that after all this prophecy, at the very end of the teaching, Jesus reminds his disciples quietly that he's not only a prophet to speak the word of God to them, even to predict the future. He's not only the priest sent from God to bring them into God's presence, he's also the king. Look at verse 36. Stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to do what? Stand before the Son of Man. There's that messianic title again. It's a very, very small phrase, but it's filled with meaning. Jesus is telling His disciples who are preparing for suffering, who would endure the destruction of Jerusalem, some of them, those who survived the first wave of persecution, would live beyond and would see their city destroyed. He reminded them something we would do well to remember. Someday we will stand before the Son of God as our King. We will give an account for the life He gave us. Number three, we need to be ready to stand before the Lord. It really is ironic. It really is tragic, I'm convinced, that in all of the many, many, many efforts to teach Bible prophecy, particularly in the United States, Christians have settled more on discerning the times and setting the dates rather than refining their character and acting the way Jesus told us to do in view of His imminent return. The focus is always on readiness. The focus is always on prayerfulness. The focus is on watchfulness because someday we will stand before Him. That was Paul's experience in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. This is Paul's last letter. After this, he would be killed by the Roman government, and I want you to see how all of this plays out in the life of the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote in his final letter, at my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me. Jesus, who was back from the dead, came to Paul and ministered to him, was present with him. Paul says, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles may hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's the mindset we want. Paul said, I was rescued and I will be rescued. Paul, I thought they killed you. They did. That was my rescue. The Lord brought me safely into His heavenly kingdom. He gets the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the mindset that we need to cultivate. Dear Christian, as the Lord 
as the Lord returns, the Lord's return grows closer day by day. Realize the fragility of your own life, the imminence of your own death, the equal imminence of the Lord's return, and here's how we're going to act. We're going to watch, we're going to pray, and we're going to be ready to stand to account for the days that we were given. I can't tell you how glad I am, how relieved I am to be coming to the conclusion of this service. As this wind picked up and we had genuine concerns about whether you'd be able to hear us, whether we would be safe out here, my prayer from last night and especially this morning as I saw, it's actually going to be much worse than we expected. We didn't know what these winds felt like. We didn't know how it would interact with our technology. My prayer focus was, Lord, how do we account for this day as a church? I'm your kid. I'm one of your under-shepherds. How do I account for myself? What decisions should I make on this Sunday? It's just a few hours. How do I give account of myself well and represent you and care for my congregation well in the next few hours? I need to take that mindset into the rest of the day. You need to take it back into your home and into your schools and into your workplaces and wherever you are. Live, dear Christian, in the constant awareness that the Lord will soon return. Be ready, be watchful, be prayerful, and day by day cultivate the day, the vision of the day of your own appointment when you stand before the Son of Man and you are ready to give a good report so that you hear from the Lord, well done, good and faithful servant. The temptation of the day is to numb yourself with things that won't matter the very next day, much less after your death. The temptation of the, your, of the day is to look constantly to God for relief rather than understand that every day we are given is actually a platform, not necessarily for relief, but for witness and for faithfulness. If we will adjust our mindset and we will be watchful and we will be prayerful, then we'll be ready to stand and we will acquit ourselves well with this glorious salvation that we were given by Christ. Let's pray together. Just take a moment, Christian, and just ask yourself in the presence of the Lord, have you been watchful? Or have you been angry? Have you been anxious instead? Have you been prayerful or more distracted? Living as you have to this moment, are you satisfied to give an account to Jesus? Stand before the Son of Man? Talk to Him about it. Ask Him forgiveness for your sins. Enjoy His grace. Receive His strength as Paul did. And Lord Jesus, thank You. Thank You for this day. In just a short time, Lord, I think probably shortly after we close this service, this wind will die down and we'll again be reminded what a beautiful, wonderful place this actually is. Help us take every day, every opportunity, every blessing and every setback and use it, Lord, to be watchful. Use it to be prayerful. Take those opportunities to love, to serve, to give, to teach kids, to come to prayer meetings and lift up the burdens of other people. Come to you, Lord, with the concerns of the nation and the community. Bring to you, Lord, the prayer requests of the sick. 
Lord, help us take every day as a precious, never-to-be-repeated opportunity to represent you well so that when we stand before you, we will do so with the confidence of your grace, knowing that we have served you well, we have served your purpose. There's a single person here, Lord, who doesn't know you, whether they're here under the tent or they're watching online. Lord Jesus, would you please, if they don't know you, would you move in their hearts right now to turn them to you, turn them from sin and turn them to you for salvation. They would call out to you and say, Jesus, I believe, as people did this very week, that they would say, please save me, forgive me, and then that they would walk with you. I pray this in Jesus' name, and Crosspoint said, amen. Folks, in closing, um, through several people, and, and primarily through uh, a woman in our church who's been a faithful, uh, faithful, wonderful part of our church for many years, God is sparking a new movement and a new emphasis in prayer. We're gathering every Sunday morning at 8 o'clock in the worship center to pray. I think there were 10 or 11 people there this morning. You're always welcome. If it grows uh, to a very large number, we'll spread up, we'll spread out. That won't be any problem. This Tuesday morning at 7 a.m., we're going to have a single worship song, and then I'm going to lead in a time of prayer as well. If that suits your schedule, you're invited to pray with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or Tuesday mornings at 7, week by week. This afternoon in the email, I'll tell you more about it. But I'd like to thank the Lord publicly for those who are working in this area. The Lord is telling us, be watchful and be prayerful, and I am relieved and I am convinced that many of the blessings that are coming into this church, the people who were saved this week, the four who were baptized this morning, all of that is in response to simple obedience to the Lord to watch and pray. So you're invited. If we can do anything for you, uh, we're here for you. As I keep saying, we're scattered, but we're not divided. We're here for you. We're uh, united as a church body. If you're our guest, we'd love for you to blow across the parking lot uh, over to the hello table. We have a little gift for you. If you've been coming for weeks, but you don't have uh, one of those gifts, it's a cool little mug. We'll even give you a gift card to put coffee in the mug, because what good is a mug without the coffee? Um, we'd love to just give you that little gift as our way of saying thank you for joining us today. Folks online, if you need anything at all, you know how to reach us right there on the website. God bless you, folks. Love you. Talk to you soon.